My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. I sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things, to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. So again, welcome to Begin Again. All right, so this time let's welcome Cameron Trimble. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You are. Okay. I've been I, called way worse, so thank you for that. <laughs> I was uh, put in contact with you by a mutual uh, acquaintance, Brian McLaren. And if you've got his stamp of approval, I'm sure that's an amazing thing to have. He um, spoke very highly of you, but if you can, can you maybe give a, a brief bio for yourself? Yeah, well, first, I'm super excited about this conversation. So thank you for the invitation. Um, and uh, being a friend of Brian McLaren's is an extraordinary honor. I, there's, there literally, there's literally no one else on this uh, earth that I, whose friendship I uh, have held in reverence for so long. So he is a wonderful gift. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, so I talk about myself as like a LinkedIn profile nightmare um, because <laughs> I do a lot of things in life. And I, you know, I think my energy is just life is short and we should be curious and adventurous and take risks. So I've started businesses. I've been the pastor of four congregations. I'm a pilot. I'm an author. I um, uh, work with the United Nations in capacities. I am connected to an international women's network um, called Future Women X, which is business leaders. Um, so anyway, I just I do a lot of fun things. I just say yes to what gives life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's many hats. But to be honest, the world actually is that interesting. And life is very short. And so, you know, just say yes um, to, to a lot. It's been a good journey. It's I've, I've learned so much for which I'm grateful. Well, and I think one thing is fascinating with somebody such as yourself who seems so um, with a hand in almost all these different circles, spheres, is that literally the insights from one area can apply in this other area over here. That's so right. It's almost like the integrated yeah. wisdom is amazing. Well, so you've spotted actually, um, I think kind of the core, because when people, and I mean, I, your background I'm, is likely the same. I mean, we, we increasingly have very diverse uh, interests that get intersected in what used to be traditional career paths. So underlying all of my little projects, we might say, you know, whether I'm the CEO of a uh, nonprofit or a for-profit or um, flying airplanes, there's, there's a um, commitment to a relentlessness in learning, um, mm -hmm. and then an entrepreneurial spirit. So mm -hmm. I really love the, um, you know, the curiosity of standing at the boundaries of, of thought, of experience yeah. of, you know, and for me, that's when I feel most alive. 
Absolutely. And so I chased that. Yeah. Well, then let's talk about the great unveiling. Yes. Uh, it's such such a great topic. And the the idea of an unveiling happening during COVID is just fascinating because obviously I think it was an apocalyptic event globally in the strict sense of the term. But I have your website here. Is it okay if I read the paragraph that you have here? Sure. Okay. I don't know what it is, but go for it. You have here the great unveiling. The global pandemic has fundamentally changed the world. But what if the fractures we are seeing in our social order, the ramifications of halting the global economy and the disorder of our global health response are actually revealing what has been true of our world for a long time? Our institutions have been failing for some time. We need a new way of life. What does this mean for your organization? As a leader, what is your role to play? What will be demanded of you? And what will you be prepared to offer? Oof. I'm, I'm yeah. all ears. I'm ready to learn. Well, um, well, let's, let's riff together here. Okay. So here's my wondering. So again, part of the privilege of the way uh, I've been able to structure my life is that I get to work in a lot of different spaces and that grants me access to a scale of imagination. So I get, mm -hmm. you know, in business spaces, there's a certain imagination operating um, almost regardless of industry. <laughs> and then in the nonprofit space uh, and then in the faith base, there's another, you know, kind of accent to that. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so when COVID hit, um, what it allowed for in all of those spaces that I was living in was people to pause long enough to ask more relevant and deeper and more meaningful questions about mm -hmm. the meaning of their lives, about mm -hmm. what are they really committed to in the systems that they're invested in and propping up and um, perpetuating uh, in their careers. And what that made transparent for a lot of people that I think, you know, now, what, three years into this, yeah. um, I'm, I worry we're actually numbing, uh, numbing ourselves away from the insights that we could have that we gained in that space. Mm -hmm. But what I think that revealed that was already true, that we just hadn't seen as clearly as COVID granted us the space to see was that the collective, um, uh, I'm going to say the particularly the North American or the the Northern Hemisphere story, the archetypal story of what it means to be human, what does it mean to be in relationship with creation with each other, with mm -hmm. the systems that we create, that story was fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. And it's brokenness, um, uh, likely in a lot of places, but I think the probably the point of greatest pain and possibility uh, of leverage is it, it was a story um, that failed to incorporate the, the level of diversity that exists in the world that has been there all along. It's just, right. we've never needed to incorporate that in our lives. Um, both diversity of other cultures and other people and uh, practices and values, but also diversity of um, animals and nature and uh, you know environment uh, and frankly, diversity of cosmos and, um, yeah. and then of diversity of, you know, down, if we go down to the, cellular level, you know, so our, our ability to understand our world and integrate that in a way that doesn't shove us towards tribalism um, is, I think, the invitation of this moment. 
But I think the great unveiling revealed we were already facing into these crises and stumbling mm. along, right? Mm -hmm. We were propping up our institutions. Our We were sacrificing our own mental health, our well-being. We continue to actually, uh, uh, to keep these systems going, this economic system of capitalism, particularly American capitalism, I should specify. Uh, you know, we were investing into these spaces all along with this little tickle in the back of our mind saying, gosh, is this really all it is? Yep. <laughs> Am I just a cog in a wheel? Am I an endless consumer? Um, so I think that was the invitation, a one of the invitations of mm. uh, mm -hmm. COVID and what I would call the great unveiling. Well, in in that word unveiling, apocalyptic is the right word. It's like it pulled back the sheet and you saw that there were termites in the table the whole time. And you've been eating at it and you, you saw the table kind of move underneath. You're like, that's, that's weird. But I think you're right. You, you actually referred back to a form of tribalism. Every time that there's a the opportunity to shift forward, or maybe maybe that's not quite the right word. Maybe it is. There's always the option to also regress backwards. And yes. you, you mentioned that by that shift back to a, a more tribal understanding when the order gets threatened. Right. Well, and, you know, um, basic laws of physics for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm. Um, we're, we're living in a, a tension. And, you know, one of the phrases that I hold in my mind, which I really believe is true of, of life, of leadership, of, of how our systems work is um, when you reach the point of breakdown, you're in position for breakthrough. Oh, that's good. So, so for for these forces that are pushing against each other, where we have like a future, a preferred future, mm -hmm. and then a nativist, oh, if we could just go back, you know, if, you know, the mm -hmm. MAGA movement in a sense, right? This, you know, go back to the good old days, whatever that is for you. Those forces in uh, pushing against each other have, I believe, laid a sufficient groundwork for a breakthrough but they must break down these yeah. boundaries first. And so we're in the time of breakdown um, uh, as at, in as much as there are also seeds being planted for the breakthrough. So now, it, it is both life, death, uh, and life again. That's very, I don't necessarily view that as a, a dismal interpretation of the past two and a half, three years. What's interesting is that actually sounds like it's a, a season of enormous potential of possibility, not necessarily of saying, oh, no, the whole thing that we knew that we stood upon is crumbled. That's one interpretation, but you just seem to give more of a nuanced interpretation that maybe some parts needed to fall apart so that we can actually rebuild some things in a much better way. And well, that's right. That's because a good nuance. Yeah, because, all, because what... What got us to this point is insufficient for mm -hmm. getting us as a global community further. Mm -hmm. And the urgency of this moment is, you know, never before in human history have we faced the existential crisis of climate change. Of course. <laughs> we literally have the capacity to destroy ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this planet, you know, um, or it's certainly ourselves. Maybe the planet will be okay after we're not here. Mm. So... So there's an urgency that creates a, um, uh, 
it, it disrupts the kind of inevitability that there's a positive outcome on the other side. So while I operate with a, <clears throat> hey, you know, I really do believe that breakdown leads to breakthrough. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge that we're up against is we may shorten the timeline because of the ways in, on which we are or in which we're living on this planet mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. it's not a guaranteed positivity at the end mm -hmm. but it's a more of a call to my thinking is it's more of a call to action that mm. the normal cycle of of life experience of evolution of what emergence is teaching us is that <clears throat> there is this breakdown breakthrough energy um in each point we would say there's some unveiling that is mm. gifted to us for an evolutionary invitation to to you know kind of up our game if you will or to oh, yeah. improve in some way right but uniquely to this moment we're now facing a capacity to end that story entirely if we can't figure out a better way to mm -hmm. live on this planet um with mm -hmm. each other and with all of all of the earth your um your conscious now just reminded me of uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah. In one of his writings, I forget which book it is. He talks about an ultra Christianity. Like what is the next? Yes. We might say evolutionary step for Christianity. Maybe other people might say uh, what's the next reformation, but his understanding of a, an ultra Christianity is one that's actually global. It's not tribal. It's not nationalistic, but man, I felt like, one of the interesting things about season of COVID and George Floyd and all of that was we couldn't not talk about the protests happening in London about the racism happening in America. Right. And so the global awareness, it's, it's like a given for the next generation that we're raised with the internet already giving them a global world, you know? Yes. Yes. It's amazing. Yep. That's exactly right. And, um, uh, again, what I, th what I think is one of the invitations of this moment where we're connected in ways we've never been before in history is that we have, uh, all of our great religions ultimately bottom line say, um, if the practice, if the belief that you hold, if the the way that you follow, if it makes you more love, loving mm. and kind and more compassionate and more generous, then that's of God, <clears throat> or then that's the path mm. to follow if there's not mm -hmm. a God in the tradition, right? Of course. And so when we talk about kind of a universal Christianity, I don't know that it's Christianity in as much as it is following the way of love and invoking, mm. you know, Brian McLaren, who says, uh, you know, congregations, if they need to exist at all as we go forward they need to be schools of love where mm -hmm. you go to become more loving more kind more compassionate more whole um more spiritually mature mm -hmm. uh, more awakened if you will right um and that that's ultimately i think the the essential work of religion good religion right now yes. mm -hmm. um and if it's not doing that it's bad religion and it should die <laughs> so, so, you know, when you talk about, I mean, well, you hinted at the kind of the incumbent racism built into our systems and the, you know, the pain of the ways in which we, we dominate one another and we abuse mm -hmm. one another and we build systems in order to enforce that, um, there, you know, mainline Christianity, I'll just use my own tribe, 
literally was founded in order to, in, in part, preserve the supremacy of whiteness. Like that's core to its, its existence, which we're only coming to really own mm. in our practice. So you have to ask the question right now, what are the systems that need to be carried forward because they make us more kind, compassionate, loving, open, accepting, right? Um, uh, and then whatever systems don't reward that, <clears throat> aren't based on values that promote that, mm -hmm. those are the systems that have carried us as far as they can carry us and they need to go. They need to be that's let right. go. Um, and that's, I think, the act of leadership right now. And I wonder if... Um a code shift wouldn't be helpful in the sense of some people don't know what I mean when I say the word systems. And I understood what you meant right there. But if I were to try to think about it as generations, um, <clears throat> it's almost like grandma had a habit and it instilled the next generation. And it's a part of my generation. And I have to choose if I want to continue that generational cycle or not. And so for some people that maybe don't know systems theory, family understandings are pretty obvious. Like, oh, grandpa smoked, but I'm not going to choose to smoke anymore. You can translate yeah. it in different ways, but it certainly feels like at least North American Western religiosity has carried itself thus far. And there are some serious parts that need to be reevaluated and pruned in some ways, cut off. Yeah, I think so. And the delicacy of that is um, like we may have known that grandpa smoked and probably grandpa smoked because everyone else around grandpa smoked. Um, and also it was a great way to relieve stress, right? Mm. I mean, that's why most people get addicted to those kinds of patterns. Um, right. And so the thing about if I choose not to smoke, I've still got the need to release stress that's in me. Mm. So I've still got that base impulse that pushes me towards behaviors that are whatever that is for us right so the again one of the challenges we're up against is all of us hold a certain story in our head a certain identity that we that we nurture in ourselves that um if there's not a better story or a better practice or a better um uh, way of identifying ourselves mm -hmm. then we're going to revert back to that that we've known yeah so like I live in the south of the United States, so I am in deep in MAGA country. I am literally surrounded by MAGA supporters on every side of me. Um, <clears throat> I am not. <laughs> I am a raging progressive. Uh, and I watch um, people who actually I think are in their own ways trying to follow the way of love, who are trying oh. to, who are curious and trying to be good humans, but whose identity is steeped in southern racist uh, hmm. white supremacy but who don't have a replacement for that yet they don't have a better way of of they don't have they have not yet gained access to a better story they could tell about themselves hmm. that honors their southern heritage but doesn't need to oppress and suppress other people hmm. in order hmm. to hold that right so that's that's part of the part of the curious work we have to do as well is how yeah. do we reweave the the relational fabric, our connection to one another in a way that honors the best of our identities, um, right. but calls each other to a, a better way of being in relationship to power um, as we engage each other. Which, which is a prophetic role. And one of the things I found is 
there's often a diminishment a diminishment of the prophetic role is like oh it just points towards jesus it's like no actually in the old testament the prophets would call out the priests and the kings for not doing their jobs well and so the prophetic role is actually it's not done this is an ongoing task of being somebody that speaks the truth in love and i think um I had some exposure to Edwin Friedman, the rabbi. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, when he talks about leadership, I remember he has a strong emphasis on imagination. That if you want to lead a people forward, you have to try to moderate their emotions of fear and replace the fear with imagination. And I saw that struggle all throughout COVID of people bouncing back and forth to like, oh, no, we can't gather to all of a sudden – wow, we can just do communion at home on our own. It's like, yes, like, well, so, and what you're highlighting here is, um, and there's, there's a whole practice that we call futures literacy, which um, helps people tap into that imaginative space. Because one of the great challenges of this moment is we're suffering with a poverty of imagination. And in that, I mean, the risk to us in that is that we are colonized by a future instead of architecting a future. So wow. one of the ways to tap into that space for each one of us is to say, okay, based on what I know and what I believe about the future today, what is my probable future? Or, mm -hmm. or collectively, what is our probable future? If things just play out as we anticipate, what's probably going to be in the future? And then the second question would be, but what's the desirable future? Mm. What, would we, what would we want to have? So our preferable future. Mm -hmm. And the tension between the probable and the desirable can wow. can spark some interesting imagination. But then if you really take this practice on, um, you throw in a, what we call a reframe. And a reframe okay. is designed to disturb the assumptions that you've got in your your picture of the probable and and the possible future or the, the desirable future. Um, and so that's that final step of that process, or it's not the final, I suppose, but that kind of turning point in the process, that pivot, it is stunning the level of creativity that can be unleashed when oh. we begin to surface and then face into these assumptions that we're all carrying that we just don't take time to, to really think through. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the kind of imaginative thinking. It requires a certain level of bravery, but uh, that's the kind of imaginative thinking I think yeah. this moment of unveiling offers to us. Well, and as I, I agree with everything. I mean, that was fantastic, but I'm, I'm actually echoing back in my mind to some conversations I had with people throughout COVID. Mm -hmm. And I had someone say to me at one point, John, don't bring this topic up because we don't want to needlessly offend people. But then the beautiful thing is you just use this word disruption. And sometimes organizations need to invite disruption yes. in order to allow some more potential. And I feel like that's a constant struggle. Yeah, there's this pull for nostalgia, but this there's also a pull to, I guess it's like um, Joseph Campbell's uh, The Hero's Journey, stay in the known, don't go into the unknown. Right. Which, by the way, I'm a huge fan of Joseph Campbell as well. Yeah. Well, who isn't really? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His his work is great. Um, uh, I, yeah, I think that's right. And um, uh, 
yeah, to play to play with the polarities, uh, and um, and know that like I'm I'm thinking about the brilliant work of Adrian Murray Brown, who says that change moves at the speed of trust. Wow. And so, so what, you know, ultimately none of us want to change <laughs> unless we're forced into an, a place of anxiety, essentially. Mm. Um, and then we ask the question, do we want to change because we want to invest into a better future for ourselves or, or, you know, invest in something that we think is more rewarding than what we have right now? Or do we want to change because we're terrified of what could happen if we don't, right? So there's a stick and carrot uh, mm -hmm. to the change, but something has to push us. Otherwise, all of us prefer to just stay in our comfort zones. Yeah. Um, so you need that, you know, all, all of our systems, all of us as individuals, we need the push. Um, mm -hmm. And then understanding how to use the push to create regenerative change, to create change that... Yes you know, for the common good, for, you know, for whatever good needs to come in that situation. That's where we're trying to tune ourselves in. Um, mm. And we'll know that we're making progress because trust becomes the byproduct of that uh, willingness to collaborate and work together. It becomes the byproduct of our saying yes to moving into mm. the anxiety, extending to each other, uh, trust that we're in it together. Mm -hmm. And then working together to to create or architect a future instead of being colonized by it. Can can I ask for your your input on this though? What is the the role of leader in leadership is far heavier than I think people realize, especially if they've never done it. They just think it's standing up in front and saying something. But as I think about leadership, there also has to be a courageousness in the leader to model resiliency because in, in I saw this tension in happening in COVID so many people felt like they were scrambling just to try to find some level of stability. But I, I actually had a theory that stability is not what we want because stability can become tyrannical when it's too tight, mm -hmm. but there's a difference between being stable versus being resilient. I feel like resilient is the thing that allows for constant little amounts of change. Yes. Sense? I hope. Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. And let me, um, let me use a story to see if I'm getting this. Um, so uh, I, I use piloting metaphors at an yes. obnoxious level. So let me, <laughs> let me go there if you'll <laughs> be patient with obnoxious? me. Come on. But um, uh, oh, so many people in my life. But um, so the thing about uh, flying in turbulence, and particularly I learned this in formation flying, because in formation flying, you're flying very close to other planes, right? And okay. so there's a certain level of risk. You don't want to, mm -hmm. you're like two feet, you know, away from another plane. And no. and when it, there's turbulence, um, you know, you're getting bounced around and tossed all about. And the interesting thing about safe flight in, in turbulence in general, but in particularly in formation flying, is the instinct, the natural instinct of, of any of us is to grip the yoke. Like we we just death lock on the yoke wow. and we wanna fight to hold the plane steady and, and level. Um, but actually you do the opposite. So in good safe piloting in turbulence, you actually fly with your fingers. You hold the yoke loosely because the plane is designed to actually adjust and to fly and to, to navigate those wow. different 
you know, wind drifts that are coming our way or, or, or points of turbulence. So when we grip the yoke, we're reducing the airplane's aerodynamics. We're actually preventing that plane from doing wow. what it was created to do all along. So our need to control actually makes us less safe. It makes us, you know, less in alignment. So when in turbulence, you loosen your, your grip, you fly with your fingers, uh, and then you can actually navigate through the rough air uh, that you're trying to get through. I think, I think leadership is the same way. <clears throat> yeah, I think leadership's the same way. In times of disorientation, our job is actually to loosen our grip, to be curious, to be open, to let, let the expansiveness of our um, collective consciousness, our, our curiosity, be creative in that space, mm. uh, because that's what we're designed to do. <laughs> we're designed to be creative in wow. the face of the unknown future. Um, so when we clamp down on imagination, on each other's mm -hmm. contributions, we lose the greatest gift we've got to give oh. to each other. That was a perfect analogy. And I had no idea. I have a friend who is a pilot, so he'll probably listen to this. He will probably love hearing that. You hold with your fingertips. Yes. Not the yep. strong. Good. Yeah, incredible. good pilotage. You just fly. You trim your airplane, but then you just fly with your fingertips. Uh, as you were sharing that, I was reminded, I read something from a rabbi who talked about the creativity of creation. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting that in Genesis 1, God actually sets up the environment, earth, land, sea. And then he says, let the land bring forth what it can. Let the sea bring forth what it can. And God's like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, but that, this idea that God actually wasn't forcibly maintaining control, but instead it was like in Genesis 1, God took the opportunity to create the environment yes for possibilities well and what's so beautiful about that text too is that so you know on on day one it's good day two it's good day three <clears throat> by the time we get to day six god looks at all of creation and says oh this is very good right so yeah. the hebrew translation is actually it's not just good it's very good mm. so all of it in relationship is very good um uh, better than just the good of each day. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, I think is a beautiful way of speaking to the wholeness of it's, we're all interdependent. Mm -hmm. Everything that is exists, it's all one. Um, and in relationship, though those relationships are not always obvious to us. Um, but moments like COVID, uh, moments, yeah. you know, like uh, we could point to, a, I mean, like what we're living through right now with Ukraine, these are moments mm. where we get to spot uh, new insights that were true all along of mm -hmm. how we're connected to each other, but we only gain access at certain points in our seeing. Mm. At that point, then the unveiling is, uh, it's not necessarily an exposing, although it can be if it's something you're embarrassed about, but a greater insight and greater clarity I feel like that should always be celebrated rather than not. That's but right. Yeah. What would you, um, in your estimation, what do you think are some of the, the main hurdles or the main tasks of leadership now as we are in 
quote unquote post COVID. It seemed as though during COVID, it was almost survival at the beginning, and then it translated yep. into something else. What do you think is the task of leadership now? Well, um, what I'm advising, I mean, in the most tactical way, uh, in most of our institutions, what I'm advising leaders to pay attention to is, I think, I think COVID invited a, a fundamental wondering of how do we belong to each other? What does belonging mean? What do what? How do we connect? You know, mm -hmm. what counts? What doesn't count? And um, and that I think our response to that question, um, uh, and I think that's actually probably one of the biggest pieces of theological wondering that mm. we need to do. So I'm not just saying like you know how do we how do we meet up for you know right of course year on Fridays right I'm 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 asking a deeper question there about belonging. Um, uh, that I believe that the our our sorting that question out is going to reshape our businesses, our mm. uh, educational spaces, mm -hmm. the way we provide healthcare, the way that we organize our communities, that certainly our faith based spaces. Um, so yeah. for me, that's for in, if I was in leadership right now, I'd be paying attention to how are people creating meaningful connection um, mm. to themselves, to each other, and then to this to the wider cosmos, to the water planet. Um, uh, I, there's another piece of it though, that uh, uh, at this, so we're going to have to hold a both and oh, good. <laughs> it's not an it. either or right. Um, because at the same time, I, my sense is that we have lived in um, what we would call maybe modernism, postmodernism, with this idea that everything revolves around the human. Like mm. the, the human is the center of any story that matters. Uh. And so the stories we tell ourselves, again, the systems we've created, everything is to center our comfort, our privilege, our um, needs, everything uh, that leads to our survival. And it has led to at the cost of nearly everything else's mm -hmm. survival. So decentering the human yes, and putting us back into right relationship, not as dominant over any other part of this world, but in connection with interdependent mm -hmm. with the world. Um, I, I actually think is one of the most critical steps we have before us. Um, which means then if I'm working in Exxon Mobil, or if I'm, you know, a CEO of, uh, you know, uh, banking industries or, you know, any of these right. big industries, I've got a different question to ask of how do I, how do I shape a system that my own people's thriving has to mm. be taken into account with the rest of the earth's thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, maybe we can actually not just destroy our systems and start again, but we could pivot uh, some yes. of them. We'll see. We'll see. So it's both. It's like, you know, how do we decenter ourselves? And then how do we also deeply connect? <laughs> um, Absolutely. So that we're back in right relationship, I think. Well, I'm not sure if you used the word there, but um, that was a, a very robust understanding of how at least I understand the word shalom. And we've yeah. made a mistake by making shalom just about the human to divine relationship, the I thou, rather than thinking about, and I get this from a seminary professor of mine um, who says she lived in Israel for about 10 years, I think. 
And she said that shalom is being in right relationship with everything and everyone around you. The soil, the water, the pollution, the car you drive, the divine, your neighbor, your neighbor of another background. It's just... Well, that's what oh. all of our great mystics have taught us too, mm. isn't it? You know, so ultimately, um, uh, and I'm thinking of Carl Rayner's quote, you know, if Christianity is to have a future, mm -hmm. uh, it will be as, or, uh, well, I'm butchering the quote, but it will be <laughs> as a, you know, it will be the energy of the mystic. It will be as yes. a mystic. Uh -huh. um, and I really think that's true because what all of our great mystics of all traditions um invite from us is living with that that impermeable sense of oneness this um mm -hmm. which is really awkward and hard to language but once you've experienced that uh, mm -hmm. uh and and it's you can it's available to every one of us but once you experience your oneness with the trees with the water with the air with mm -hmm. the birds with the um uh it it rewires you in in some really significant ways and the gift of that is that it then forces a decision are you are you going to try to live your life unseeing the connections that exist or are you going to actually now live with a sensitivity mm. to the the full integration of you know of all that exists here in this beautiful world we're in mm. um, and then you make different decisions if you care about that um, so I, just one of the eight million gifts of the mystics that uh, that they really, offer to I, us. They're they're where it's at for me. I learned about them in seminary, but we never studied them at depth. So I kept yep. a list and I just read them up on my own. And I've always thought to myself, these people get it more than the systematic theologians. That's exactly why, right. Why yep. are they so overlooked? And I think it's because they're not. They're actually not heretics, although some people think they were. I actually think that they were coming from a place of such immense spiritual maturity that to people that are still early in their faith journey, I mean, Brian would talk about stages of development as well. Um, yep. To well, people, and they weren't. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Uh, to people early in their faith development, it's almost like the the mystics are speaking with a completely different um not necessarily vocabulary. They're using the same vocabulary, but they're they're pointing to stuff beyond the vocabulary. I guess is the best right. way I can say it. That's right. Yeah. The they're they're having to use words because it's what we have, but it's uh, <laughs> that's right. It's it's a faded a faded experience of what they're really pointing to. You know, I think that the the important one of the important things to uh, for people to remember about the brilliance of the mystics and why they're so important for this moment in our history versus mm. some of the other more institutional religious teachers that we've had mm. is that the mystics weren't um, in any way, shape or form committed to institutional religion. Mm -hmm. They weren't trying to set up power structures and, you know, maintain systems and institutions. They were uh, just relentlessly committed to seeking God, um, oh, driven yeah. to points that, you know, others might, would have called them crazy and often did. Mm -hmm. um, so they had different objectives. Uh, and it's only now as we're mm. wondering about different questions and seeking, the, uh, uh, I think, a rise of 
this desire to seek God that the mystics, I think, are surfacing again for us, mm. coming back to us and saying, hey, <laughs> I've, I've been here. I'm going yeah. to read my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I'll be honest, as you were talking earlier, and we should start to wrap it up, but uh, you reminded me of Hildegard of Bingham because some people might say that you're a very green person. And so am I, I mean, I love being outside and, uh, yeah. but so many people are like, Oh, is this organization green? Are you green person? Da, 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 da. But she was writing back in the 1300s and she was being called the green theologian all the time talking about creation care. And so was St. Francis. I'm like, see, these people have been in the tradition for a long time, but it's almost as though they've either been forgotten or overlooked or something. And yeah. Yep. Well, you know, the, the challenge is that we like to reduce people to labels. And one mm. of the gifts of mystics is that there's not, um, they're not reducible to that. So mm. for them, their experience of encountering the sacred and their understanding at such a deep level of the oneness, the, the interdependence mm. that is true, that is for them is the truth of how uh, life is structured it requires mm. it requires a whole a whole theology w h o yes. um right and therefore you cannot leave out um the trees and the birds and the air etc it's because it's all it's all woven into a more complete picture oh. um which they were they're trying to point us all towards i i very much enjoyed this <laughs> i feel like i will this be is like, with you anytime Oh man, this is like one of the best gifts of the internet is you get to meet some really interesting people. And I, uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I hope we can meet yeah. in person at some point, get coffee. I'm, I'm just outside of Philly. Where are you located? Uh, I'm in Atlanta. Oh, uh, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. And actually, uh, interestingly, it, in COVID, uh, we, we sort of accidentally moved to, uh, our lake home, which is in Wadawi, Alabama. Uh, so I'm actually talking to you today from Alabama, which I never <laughs> dreamed I would say out loud. Um, but here I am, but I look out at a beautiful lake and it's, I have geese who greet me every morning and we have bald eagles and heron and, um, and six acres to play on. And it's been a real gift. So, um, That's lovely. to the civilized, yeah, to the, to most of the world, I just say Atlanta cause Wadawi is just a mouthful, but, um, well, but I hold yeah, I now find myself rooted in both lands. Well, um, let's wrap it up then. Uh, first off, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I really honestly do want to have another conversation with you about some of the other things that you're interested about and that you're all about. Um, you have some impressive organizations, but is there anything that you'd like to, to give a quick reference to that you're up to or about to do? Oh, gosh. Um uh, thank you for that invitation. Um, you know, I can't think of anything. I, I'm spending a lot of time reading and writing these days. And, you, you know, I try to keep the world informed about that on my website, or you can, I, I really loathe social media, but I have to tolerate it. <laughs> yep. So anyway, uh, but nothing major uh, coming up, at least that I'm aware of at the moment. So okay. I just spend my days geeking out. Well, thank you again. And we'll see you again. Thank yeah. you so much. Yep. It's been an honor. Thanks.